0: Welcome to the Emboldened Podcast.
1: I'm Naima Abdullahi.
0: And I'm Marquise Francis.
1: Emboldened's mission and vision is to bring the Emma Bowen Foundation community together, and that means you.
0: By giving listeners exclusive access to trailblazers and influential decision makers within the media industry.
1: And this is the 11th episode of the first season of the Emboldened Podcast, and our guest today is Rodney Hawkins cbs news producer and one of emma bowen's newest board members
0: since 2011 rodney has risen up the ranks at cbs from a broadcast associate to a 2012 joe biden off air reporter to an associate producer at cbs this morning to a full-blown national producer an amazing journey
1: thank you so much for joining us today on the emboldened podcast now as you reflect on your journey going from job title to job title how would you best describe your come up story because it's one that so many other people aspire to be like one day
2: well first I just want to say thank you guys for having me on uh, I think this podcast is what the epitome of us as alumni should be doing is learning about our experiences and pushing each other to the next level so mm-hmm. thank you guys I've been listening to all of them and they've been incredible I'm just humbled to be a part of so many incredible people. But that's a great question. How did I get where I am today in each of those different positions that I was in? Really I have to credit the Emma Bowen Foundation with where I got my start and how I learned how to navigate all the various positions and the politics to get to where I am today. You know. In the Emma Vaughn Foundation, one of the things that I thought was incredible and I didn't know until I joined and after actually like two or three years was going around to all the different departments. My corporate sponsor was Fox and I worked at the Fox local television station in Austin, Texas. So my first summer, I was a part of the news department. And then I did a half of that summer in the marketing department. And I pretty much did that for the course of four years. I started actually when I was a senior in high school until I graduated. And so there I really understood the tools of not only networking, but understanding the different departments and what everyone does. I was very inquisitive. I don't know uh, if this word is still used, but I was one of those thirsty interns. I wanted to know everything (laughs) about everyone. I was always in, you know, different people's offices for lunch, going out on different stories in the edit bay, talking to the editors about their careers. And it was just exciting just to learn all these different things. And so I pushed myself when I made it to CBS after I graduated to really finding out all the different things, because at first I wanted to be on air and my goal was to be a correspondent, if you will, at the network. And then I, I quickly realized that not only were there other positions, but there were other power positions, like being a producer, where you can really make change. And so, as I navigated my career, the first thing I wanted to do was be like some of the mentors and sponsors that I had. And I know that they, for example, went on the campaign trail. And so, I pinpointed that and I was like, this would be an incredible opportunity. Not only am I you know, covering a presidential election, but I'm writing for our website. I'm shooting video footage for all of our shows. And then I'm really understanding how to be a beat reporter. And so that training really showed me not only what it meant to be a journalist, but also helped me understand that I was made to be a producer. And the way that I found that out was Working with correspondents and putting together those stories wow. while I was on the campaign trail and deciphering, you know, for example, when I was with the vice president at the time, what he was saying on the campaign trail versus how they could use that, for example, for the CBS Evening News and working with those reporters, I was like, man, this is fun. I'm actually getting to write. Uh, this is exciting. I'm learning something new. And then at the end of the day, I get to do it again and I can do it with a different reporter. And so that really showed me, you know, the the importance of producing and why I am where I am today.
0: And thanks for sharing that. And so we right before we hit record, we talked about how this is the first guest in which we had some time overlapping. We're, we're peers. We were in Emma Bowen some of the same years. So I, when I look back at my Emma Bowen days and I graduated in 2013, I have to admit, I remember seeing you on stage speaking, right? You were at that big network, CBS, you were a noob, fellow brother, kept off a side, and you were just killing it. So, yo, (laughs) you know, and, as I'm getting more into my career, and it's so funny because you said, I don't know if they use this word still thirsty. It's funny because we're in really no young, no longer the young people, right? And we're like looking (laughs) at other young people like, yo, (laughs) what's the cool thing? Like who y'all listening to? You know, but it, it is what it is, right? So, so back then, you know, you were someone who I looked up to and I saw what you were doing. You know, every time there was a conference, I would go up to you, ask a question or two, you know, but as time has evolved, How have you taken on that responsibility of being a role model in some way?
2: Wow. Well, first, I'm just honored that you looked at me in that way, because whenever I see the both of you, I consider what you guys are doing as equally as impressive as well as accomplished as I am. So thank you. How do I look at myself as a role model? Honestly, I don't think of myself as a role model but I think of myself as someone that is gonna help the way that I was helped. And so at any given point that someone asks me a question, someone reaches out, I'm gonna give them the same treatment that my mentors and my sponsors gave me because I would not be here without it. And so with me climbing, it's all about not only making it up, quote unquote, that corporate ladder, but it's reaching back and I never really try to look at myself, you know, as, oh, I've made it because I don't think any of us have made it if we're all aren't at the top. And that's what I really think is so incredible about the Emma Boyne Foundation. And I was so impressed with uh, at an early age was just seeing how incredible not only, you know, those alum that would come back and speak. But sitting in those rooms at those conferences and just seeing how incredible each and every person was, I was like, wow, I want to be like that person. I want to have that. And so being at this point, I'm just continuing to do the same things that were done for me as well as, you know, doing what is asked of me, you know.
1: No, absolutely. And with reaching back, it's so important. I mean, you know, you graduated from the program, you're chasing your dreams, and you know, the concept of making it always changes because that definition we're always redefining. As you go from an Emma Bowen scholar to being on the board, what was that transition like for you? Because I know that you've always wanted to remain involved with the foundation, but how is that decision process for you to say, okay, I'm gonna take it up to another level? and I'm going to join the board.
2: Wow, uh, that's a great question. So I'm a, do you want me to keep it real, real, or real, yeah. real?
1: Yeah, 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 <laughs> let's do it.
2: So uh, honestly, I never thought I would be a board member this quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. I
2: knew that it was important for alumni to be on the board. As you know, Delia is doing incredible things with the alumni. And as mm-hmm. president of the alumni organization, she sits on the board. We also have other alumni that sit on the board. And I remember being a part of the National Advisory Council. And I went to my first board meeting. I believe this was two years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was at NYU. And it felt like the Justice League. Like you walk in. I don't know if you guys had access to this room. But literally, it's like this precipice of, you know, whenever you go into an auditorium, there's these big windows and then on sits all the board members who, as you know, you've guys been interviewing them, mm-hmm. some of the executives at all of these media companies that we work for. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, not only am I in the room, but my name is literally at that table saying, I, I'm a part of this. I'm going to sit down. Wow. And so sitting in that first meeting, I felt the weight of not only being a alumni, but also being a black man, because Mm -hmm. in that space, there weren't that many black men. I think I was one of three out of maybe there was like 30 or 40 people in the room. And then of that, there were maybe like four or five of our sisters. And then maybe I would say like in total, there was like six or seven people of color. There might be more, but this is what I'm remembering. And in that space, I was like this is incredible listening to not only the alumni that were there speaking on our behalf and I spoke up too during that meeting but also understanding how those executives saw us as students in behind closed doors and I was hearing it right and so sitting there it it was incredible also to see Rasan and at the time he was president of the Bowen Foundation, he was asking various things, different funding, presenting in different ways, and really coming to the board as you would with any board of any major company, asking for this is how we're gonna grow, this is the budget we need. And I almost was like, wow, so he's essentially serving us as the board members. At the time I was not a board member, but that this is all what's going through my head. And so after that meeting, I remember going to Dalia. one, almost being uh, overwhelmed with the sort of understanding of what I just saw. And then two, knowing that I was supposed to be there. And so after that meeting, I remember thinking to myself, and I believe I said it to Rasan that I wanted to be on the board one day. And I wanted to be in that room and be one of those change agents. Mm. Flash forward to Probably six or seven months later, we had our first alumni conference during that conference, which was incredible. I know both of you. Well, Naima, were you there? I know. Markees I wasn't. Um,
1: I wanted to be there so bad. But I've yeah, no, I wasn't there. I was I, I had FOMO, though. I saw the pictures.
2: <laughs> well, let you me decide. just say shout out to everyone that was involved in planning that because Absolutely. it was incredible. And I really felt like back in our student days at a mm-hmm. EBF conference. And yeah. it it just really came full circle, especially with it being in LA. But that said, after that meeting, I had several meetings with different board members in Rasan, And I then said to them, I wanna be a board member. And I don't know how long it will take me to get there, but that is in my plan. And I want to do that. And here's why I said, why? Because I know how important it is for alumni to be in that room, but also my sister, her name is Taylor Miller, and she's probably embarrassed now that I shouted her out, but she's (laughs) a current student of the Emma Boyne foundation. And I knew the experience from myself but also living it through her too right now and what it means to be a student. Mm -hmm. And it's important for in that moment, and I realize now in hindsight, for you to ask for what you want. And too often, I think many of us don't realize the power in just asking those who have the power to help us of just asking. And so I asked and three months later, It was delivered. I thought this was going to be like a three, four year, maybe five year sort of ordeal before I could make it to being a board member. But because I asked, because I have constantly been involved, it happened. And so here I am now as a board member and excited to continue to do the work of advocating for us as not only students, but alumni.
0: I just want to say that's that's a bit of a word right there. And it seems so simple uh, as far as asking, but there's just so much power in your speech and kind of speaking things into existence and letting people know uh, what you want. But I do want to follow up because you talked about being in that uh, room, your first board meeting, and you know, they're not being necessarily that many people of color, specifically even black people. right? And I know obviously Emma Bowen serves just all people of color, but you know, from its inception, you know, it has been in some sense, right, we're going to a lot of these powerful networks, mostly ran by a lot of powerful white people saying, hey, we did this opportunity, you know, help us, you know, figure this out, help us level the playing field. So I'm just curious of where, where your head is at and, how, and what do you think about the representation of where we're at as a foundation and, you know, where, where we can continue to grow and, and, and get to?
2: Yeah, so I think the representation is happening. I think we're at a a precipice as a culture in America in general with seeing with the Black Lives Matter movement. Now we actually not only have seats at the table, but they're giving us the agency to speak up. I think in real time, that's also happening with the foundation. I believe that it is as diverse as it has ever been, the board. And when I was in there in my first board meeting, I was, you know, a surprise, but I also was pulled to the side by some of my sisters and they said, this is as best as I've seen it ever. So you're coming in at a great time. So if you can imagine for them to say that to me and I'm sitting here like, wow, you know, I haven't been in, you know, this space before in a while. And I I do, obviously, in my functioning right now, where I'm oftentimes the only person of color or black person in the room. But as far as exactly what you're saying, the Emma Boyne Foundation, the whole point of this is to get minorities who are interested in media jobs in the media industry and us to represent. But I also think there being so few of us in that room still shows how far we have to go. And so I applaud Rasan for seeing me and he nominated me to that position and all the board members that, you know, seconded and voted me in to be a representative because it is needed. And there's more of us that need to get involved. I mean, I think the alumni organization as a whole needs to be 10 times stronger than it is because not only are we reaching those levels where we're in the rooms and we're doing incredible work like the both of you are doing, but we also now have the power to make change in those rooms. And we also can do that for the Emma Bond Foundation. And then also we can start creating synergies amongst each other. You know, many of us make this joke, and I talked about it with Delia before, where we could actually make our own media company with all the various different things that all of us do it, and media, and into industry, we can make our own Emma Bowen network, if you will. And that's very evident right now with this podcast, right? So, I think we have the power more than we actually, I want to admit to, or I think the better word would be, well, I would say admit to. Yeah.
0: Okay. I appreciate that. And, and it's it's so true because I feel as though, you know, not everyone is the same, but we can still all play our role, right? Whereas you are on the board, you know, Naeem and I are doing this podcast. Everyone can do something. I think the reality, I think the truth of the matter is the re, you can't do nothing, right? And even showing up at an alumni conference is doing something. And, you know, right. sometimes it's like good that we need to call each other out because, you know, too often do people benefit from something and not give back. But we just don't have, you know, as much leash to be able to do so. You know, and that's just where where it is. But just taking things back just a little bit. How did you first learn about the Emboon Foundation and get involved? You talked about starting in high school. I know Naeem in the past past episode talked about her getting started. And for me, I was all over the place, like didn't get into my freshman year. But how did you first find out about the Emboon Foundation and what was that experience like?
2: Wow. So that experience was very haphazard. Uh, I had a overeager mom and parents that wanted me to apply for every single scholarship existed because at the time. Not like uh, me. <laughs> right. At the time, my university, I went, I went to Howard. I'm a Howard alumni. They hadn't given me my full scholarship package. And I actually turned down a few offers to play football at some small G2 schools. And my parents were like, you know, you're turning down these full scholarships, but you're going to Howard. Who's going to pay for all this? I'm like, well, we're going to figure it out. And they're like, well, you need to apply for as many scholarships. And so actually the Emma Bowen Foundation came from a family friend who lives across the street who told my mom, like, I know your son is interested in media. You know, he was doing newspaper in your book. He might want to apply for this. This seems like a great opportunity. So I applied. The deadline was two days after I got the application. So I remember sweating night the night before I sent in the application, like, man, I hope this is right, because I had not slept for those two days making sure that this was tight and together. And so I sent in my application, and I live in Dallas at the time, and the application went in. I get back and they say, you were denied, probably like two or three months later. and Or yeah, that was two or three months later. And when I get that denial letter, I'm like, what? Me? I'm like, I have like this great GPA. I was homecoming king. I was captain of the (laughs) football team. I'm going to Howard University. How can you deny me? Mm -hmm. Then I email Sandra Rice. And this is my first encounter with her. You know, she is amazing, but she'll get to you together real quick. And really? I call her. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, I don't understand why I was denied. I would love to be a part of this foundation. And she said, well, you know, sometimes things don't work out and it's not you. It's actually because the internship that you apply for in Dallas is filled. And she said, actually, I'm working on trying to find an intern in Austin, Texas. And I'm like, really, Austin? I was like, I could go there. That's not far from me, and I have family there. Hmm. Little does she know, I have no family in Austin. I'm just this <laughs> ogre, <eager> beaver. <laughs> Hang up. She's like, oh, that's great. I'm gonna send your application in now. Yada 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 to Fox. Hang up, and then I, I get I see my mom, and I'm like, Mom, do we have any family in Austin? And she's like, uh, your godparents, I think, just moved there a few months ago. And I'm like, oh, fantastic. They have a internship there that I could work at with the foundation. <laughs> Two, three weeks later, I end up going down and interviewing. And then I end up getting the internship and the rest is history.
1: Wow. You controlled your own story and your own narrative. You said, I'm going to call her. I'm going to pull up on her make sure I actually wasn't really, really rejected. Like A lot of people wouldn't have taken that extra step. And because of that, the trajectory of your life and your success and your career changed for the better because you were willing to actually ask for clarification, you know?
2: Right. Yeah. And and again, I always go back, ask for what you want. Mm. And uh, you, you know, but ask also through humility, right? Mm-hmm. Because part of what I asked was not only, you know, I think I'm great, but I also I should have put in, you know, is there something that I could do mm. to make myself better for the next time I apply or the next go round, and understanding how you can get better. And that's Mm -hmm. part of it.
1: No, that's amazing. One question I want to ask you is, and I want to pivot the direct, the uh, conversation in a different direction. What we're seeing now in media is an, an appreciation for culture, content, diversity, representation, and fair coverage, authenticity of Black neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. And, you know, we're seeing this beautiful intersection and and synergy where a lot of corporate companies are starting to create divisions and jobs tailored to race and culture. And, you know, with the state of the nation right now, too, there's just a lot of synergy happening with the state of the nation. How are you analyzing that, you know, to see ABC News, to see CBS, to see CNN start a division? Everyone is investing in race, culture, divisions at the moment.
2: Right. I I think it's incredible. I think it's it's about time. But I will say this. As much as I want to applaud all these companies for creating these departments, I also think that there shouldn't be a need for these departments because we are American culture, right? Mm. So whether it's our music, it's our food, it's... Everything that is American can somewhat tie back to black people or a minority or person of color, and so mm-hmm. I think that now that we have all these departments that are being created, it's beautiful that they're understanding the value there. But I hope one day we can get to a place to where it's already mainstream in how, for example, we set up our newscast or mm-hmm. understanding that. Not every magazine cover needs to be a Black person on Black history. And I know this is a very rudimentary example, but there are so many different ways to where I think everything should already be ingrained, and I hope we can get to that place. But that said, I, I do think it's really, really important for us to keep championing these positions. And I hope it's just not for popularity right now and it will sustain itself because the last thing I want to do is for this to be a trend. And then two to three years from now, you know, these departments have gone away, not only because, you know, they lost interest, but oftentimes when, you know, the, 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 what do they say? The first in is the first out. So Mm -hmm. that department that they're looking to cut when budgets get tight, I hope it's not these culture and, you know, black
0: departments, quote unquote. For sure. We definitely don't need that to happen. And, you know, at the top of this, I kind of went through your different pit stops on the way at CBS for, for a lot of people seeing what you've done to date, they, they, you know, it's like Instagram, you only see the highlights, but I feel as though for a lot of people listening and recent graduates, You know, oftentimes what's most important is to hear about people's challenges to be able to learn from them. So I'm curious, do you have, you know, one particular challenge that sticks out where it was a really trying time in your career that you had to overcome and what you did there?
2: Yes, I've had many. I mean, you know, with every failure that I I have, I call that a learning lesson. And those to me are the best learning lessons is when I fail because it hits you the hardest and you acclimate and you move on, but you've learned something through all of that experience. And so one of those that I think was really pivotal is you guys mentioned when I was an associate producer at CBS this morning, which mm-hmm. was great. I mean, I was able to not only you know produce live shots, but I was also creating content through saying hey, like for example, I know Bubble Wallace is really big right now, but five years ago he was actually the first story that I featured on CBS this morning because I they were talking about this black NASCAR driver, and I'm like, hey, we got to put this story on. They believed in me, and I went down to Tennessee and told that story. And so through those experiences, I also built up my resume. And after three years, I was like, hey guys. I'm doing producer work and you're asking me to be a producer, but you're not giving me the title. And I kept bumping my head up against the wall when I was having these conversations. And I had a lot of mentors that believed in me, but Mm -hmm. at the time it just didn't fit for me to move up at the show. And so what could I do for me to get in that position? Well, I found out that there was a position, a producer position opening up in Dallas, working for the network. I was like, I'm from Dallas. I would love to work in a bureau and get that experience. So went to our HR department and some of the producers, executive producers and others, and started having those conversations. And lo and behold, the opportunity came for me to move down to Dallas. And I actually got the title that I wanted. But in hindsight, you know, there was a lot of people during that experience, like, you're going to go from New York to Dallas? why are you going to do that? You're going to put yourself out of the, you know, the, the, the mix of the precipice of media. And I'm like, well, I also want to have the opportunity to be a producer and to really get to do these stories. Mm. And it was a challenge making that move for the the first year also was getting married in that year. My wife is a New Yorker. So personally, that was also a a big battle, actually something that is still going on to this day where You know, if you can imagine, you know, me that Texan saying Dallas is great and someone who's from, you know, the Upper West Side, Westchester, like, "Uh, I don't know about Texas. So personally and professionally, it was challenging, but it's been the greatest decision that I've ever made in my career was to move down here because it gave me the opportunity to be involved in so many different stories that I wouldn't otherwise. And, you know, I'm. I'm also thankful to be here in this time because mm-hmm. during this Black Lives Matter movement, I was able to cover some of those major trials of police shootings. And I actually am the first Black producer for CBS in the Dallas Bureau of his existence. Mm. And so that weight sits on me too. But now, you know, I lean into my Blackness even more so because I know that it's needed and now I know that it's wanted.
1: Wow. we hear the concept of, you know, the first this, the first that, like in the year twenty twenty to hear, you know, the first black producer in that division, that is overwhelming and that gives you a sense of responsibility. But like to think, wow, 2020 just lets you know how much more work is needed to be done, right?
2: Totally. I I think so. And the other side of it too, I I, I don't I mean don't want to discredit myself, but I also think it's partly why I'm the first black producer here is a lot of us don't know about the opportunities. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us don't know that, Hey, I can move out of New York and go and work and still work for the network somewhere else. And so that was also part of it. I think of why I'm the first is because a lot of people weren't aware of this opportunity. Granted, I, there is some of that. Uh, there wasn't ever a black producer because maybe you know, institutional racism, obviously, but I, I think it's also opportunity. And if someone else just as good, if not better than me, got the opportunity, they would be here too.
1: Mm-hmm. One question I want to ask you is, and it's, it's a question we also asked in the previous podcast episode. Oftentimes, you know, when we become interested in media, we become interested in being on camera, which is what we all first initially want, right? and then you know all of us we eventually realize producers executive producers news directors general managers you know the, the, there's far more greater power behind the camera in the decision making process where if i'm a reporter i only control a minute 30 of the hour long content where if you're a producer you know, you have creative control over the full product. Tell us about, you know, how important the role of a producer is for people who may not realize that that path is just as powerful or even far more effective for the industry.
2: Wow. Well, thank you for seeing us producers because we are not seen, obviously. (laughs) I have to constantly remind my family. They're like, you still working for CBS? I haven't seen you on TV. And I'm like, yes, I work for CBS and I'm still doing it. I know you don't see my, my Instagram post all the time, but that is a great setup. I mean, it, it's everything that you said of why I decided to be a producer rather than go on air. I'm a control freak. I think many of us are on TV, but specifically I'm one of those people where I like putting the puzzle together. And I also like the big picture of it all, right? And so as a producer, not only do I get to set up and find the stories, but I'm also helping that correspondent or reporter, whomever I'm working with, figure out the right questions to ask. And then once we get into the edit bay, I'm able to actually put down the video and the pictures and the graphics and bringing it all together. And there's many people part of the process, but I'm usually the one that works from the beginning of it to the end of it. And that to me is also why I've loved it so much is because I I get to have ownership over a lot of the stories. Although you don't see my face, if I pitch a story idea and I work with that reporter.
0: So you touched on it earlier, your experience at Howard University. But I can remember going to conferences and there's like the whole roll call and shout outs at different schools. And it seemed like Howard University and Syracuse were two of like the top schools of Emma Bowen fellows. And, you know, obviously we have, you know, the VP nominee and Kamala Harris kind of putting on for HBCUs right now, and more specifically H-U? Howard yeah. University. But I'm just curious, how did your HBCU experience shape your journey ultimately?
2: Wow. So my Howard experience and Hu HBCU experience was everything. I mean, I grew up in a suburb of Dallas uh, called Plano. In my first through 5th grade classes, I was one of two black students consistently, and that followed me all the way up until high school. There was more black people there, but as you can imagine, you know, you live in this white experience growing up and you really don't find yourself as quickly as I would say if you were comfortable all the time. And so going to Howard, I really understood the value of not only my blackness, but me understanding who I was outside of how the world saw me. And so I champion everything that I do to that experience, whether it was my black professors really preaching and teaching to me, not only understanding what it meant to be a journalist, but also looking to those journalists that came before me. For example, like while I'm in class, we're talking about how to be an anchor and we're producing a show. And then we have Frederica Whitfield, who as you know, is uh, on CNN weekend anchor, but she is also coming and speaking to us and telling us about her experience. And so those sort of examples, as well as understanding how important black culture was, was really pivotal to getting me to understand who I was and giving me the confidence to not only be in the room, but sit up and advocate and actually have a voice in the room.
1: Yeah. A question I wanted to ask you is, what is it like being a Black journalist? And with everything in the headlines, those are stories that do hit close to home. So how do you balance that covering the content and also it being content that relates to your life?
2: Yeah. So it's always really hard talking to our communities and experiencing at the same time. But it also reminds me of how important it is for me to be in the position that I am and advocate as well as understand how important it is for our voices to be in those stories and our perspective to be told. For me, it also is a a big to-do for me to be in this position because in early 2000, my uncle was shot and killed by Dallas police officers. And during those times, we didn't have social media and there wasn't a lot of media coverage on my uncle's story. And it was a misidentification of why he was shot. And it ended up being similar to many of the shootings we see now where he uh, was resisting arrest is what they said happened. And one thing led to another and he died. And so that was extremely traumatic. And that happened when I was in middle school and that kind of set a trajectory for me understanding how important media and news was which is why I actually am a journalist to this day. You know, one of those things that really has hit home for me and why it's so important for me to be in this position is, for example, with Ahmad Arbery going and talking to his family members and his mom, Wanda Cooper Jones, and telling her, please tell your story to CBS News and talk to us. Not only because I think we're the best network and we will tell your story fairly, but also because I'll be the producer and I under, actually understand what your family is going through right now. And oftentimes I don't really start the conversation with telling them about my story, but mm-hmm. as I get to know them, I make them more comfortable with understanding that not only you know, am I producer and I cover this a lot, but... Sadly, I experienced it, too, through my family's pain. So I know what you're actually going through. And I don't think they hear that that often. And so that's Mm -hmm. really helped me in so many different times when we're booking different interviews. For example, you know, Jordan Edwards to Botham John. I also covered the George Zimmerman trial when I was an associate producer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, understanding what happened to Trayvon was really, really eye-opening for me at an early age in my career where I had never been actually in the courtroom to see the process of what happens during those sorts of prosecutions of those that shot unarmed Black men and women. And understanding that and, and the value of what we do as journalists, it really catapulted me to, to t- telling more of our stories and making sure everybody understood the importance of having our voices in there.
1: No, thank you so much thank for sharing that. Me. That is such a necessary perspective. And, you know, our past and our traumas and our experiences can really give us a sense of relatability, but provide the right kind of perspective that's needed in media.
2: Totally. And, and one thing, too, I will, I will say, you know, early on in my career, I was ashamed of that side of my story, right? And my perspective. I didn't want too many people to know. And I'm not an opportunist, so I don't use it as an opportunity to get the interview. But I think more of us should own our experiences because a lot of our white colleagues or other colleagues don't know what we're going through. And understanding our experiences in this world will help shape them to knowing that whatever story they're telling is not distant from them, right? Like you telling this story of Ahmad Arbery being shot and killed is as much his story as it is my story as a black American and understanding that value is, is what I think it means for us actually to be in the room and to speak up.
0: That's so true. And I, and I think, you know, specifically as black people, sometimes, you know, we think we're doing ourselves a, a disservice by, kind of sheltering from our, our reality. You know, I think we're oftentimes trying to blend in or, or, you know, not trying to ascribe to a stereotype or just whatever we think is right. You know, but to your point, I think actually leaning into who we really are, the good, the bad, the ugly is ultimately, I feel as though, you know, the power in which we hold. Right. And I think to your point, you, you, and your family having that experience like n- no one can tell you what that experience is like because you've actually been through it versus someone else coming on and just trying to figure it out. So, like Naima said, thank you for sharing that, you know. I think it's super powerful and I think a lot of people including ourselves will be able to learn and take so much from that.
1: One follow-up I wanted to ask you is, you know, as as your career continues to pivot and pivot and pivot as you elevate, what advice do you have for Emma Bowen scholars who wants to walk in the lane you're in um, and who are curious about the producing side of the industry.
2: So the first thing I'll say no matter what career you're in, you have to constantly be learning and never get complacent. I sometimes have bad days. I have try to have as more good many more good days than I do bad days. But whatever your experience is, you constantly have to challenge yourself and I think a lot of us particularly for example, me, I've been at the same company for almost 10 years now, I can fall into this complacency. So I have to remind myself too, I'm like, you need to learn a new skill or you need to work on something new. For example, right now I'm working on my first full feature-length documentary for CBS. And one of the things that I think has kept me going and being able to make all those pivots was that I learned a new skill. And at first I was like, man, you know, I'm humping. I'm not making as much money as I wanted to. I'm not in the position that I want to be in, but I didn't realize all the tools and the things that I was learning, for example, as a a digital journalist or backpack journalist, where not only was I shooting, but I was writing, I was producing, I was doing some on-air work as well. Those skills I still use to this day, and I know how to flip them on and off. And so every experience that you have will really work itself into your future roles more than you know. And the value of it, you need to hold on to, you know, knowing that you have that dream or that goal to get into this one position or be a producer like me, but also knowing that where you are is just as important to get you to where you're going.
0: Absolutely. And thank you thank you for that. I think once again, you know, as Naeem and I have been working for a few years ourselves, we're we're having to like learn these things, but I think the sooner Emma Bowen Fellows recent grads are able to really harness that, the more successful they'll be. So I really want to appreciate you just sharing your wisdom, your journey, and basically your story with all of us. I I know I learned a bunch and I see what you do from the outside, but hearing the journey, hearing how you went from New York to Texas and how that was you know, not an easy decision and how your own family has had to deal with different situations. We really appreciate you sharing the insight.
2: You're welcome. It's an incredible thing for you guys to have this podcast for us to share our stories. And I really think just as valuable it was for us to talk to each other at the conferences This podcast is really showing how valuable it is for us to actually talk to each other and listen to each other and share the experiences. That way we all can grow together.
1: Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us. This was the 11th episode of the first season of the Emboldened Podcast with our guest today, Rodney Hawkins with CBS News as a producer and one of Emma Bowen's newest board members. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to bringing you guys another episode next week.